is brought to you by the Arc from Verve. If you want to improve your posture, the Arc has you covered. Developed by a physical therapist, designed by an engineer, made in the USA, the Arc is going to improve your posture and relieve that neck and back pain once and for all. What is up, guys? Welcome to the brand new Strength Doc podcast hosted by UpDoc Media with me, Dr. John Russin. I want to get one thing clear. This is not going to be your average fitness podcast, and I'm sure as hell not your run-of-the-mill strength coach. Hey guys, Dr. John Russin back at you with the brand new episode of the Strength Doc Podcast. This week, we have Dr. Scotty Butcher on the show, who is a PhD, but he's also a guy that loves to lift heavy shit and write and talk about it. So we're going to get into everything having to do with strength training, physical therapy, bridging those two things together, and really getting into all of the little intricacies of where our profession is headed as the hybrid strength coach. Guys, this is a great episode, so I want to get right into it with my guest, Dr. Scotty Butcher. Enjoy. What's going on, guys? Dr. John Russin back with a brand new episode of the Strength Doc Podcast hosted by UpDoc Media. Today, I am joined by Dr. Scotty Butcher, who is an associate professor of exercise science and physical therapy at the University of Saskatchewan. Scotty, great to have you on today. Hey, man. Thanks for the invite. I'm glad to be here. Man, I, I had to bring on more doctors because this is the Strength Doc Podcast. So, you know, we're ringing a couple in a row here on Strength Doc Podcast. And you're definitely a guy that does the iron game, does the academics, and really just synergizes the two. So it's a perfect match to get your expertise on Strength Doc Podcast today. Cool, man. I'm glad to be here. This is, uh, um, this is the sort of thing that I think we need uh, as a profession to be doing more of. So it's cool, cool stuff. Yeah, I mean, we, we do a lot on social media. We're always touching base, and I think you and I really see eye-to-eye eye in a bunch of different topics in our industry. But just starting off, you know, we're going to throw some coal on the fire here and just go into a couple key things around squat, deadlift, and the safety and the efficacy of both of those things because I know you are a big power lifter. You know, I've seen you on the platform on Facebook videos. And I, I just want to know what your take is on the grand squat debate, the ass to grass, the above parallel, and everything yeah. in between. Yeah, well, I'm not that big to begin with, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do dabble in the powerlifting. I do like it. So, uh, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's a nice marriage between, uh, uh, you know, the stuff, the stuff that I, I book learn and book teach and, and uh, you know, the coaching practical stuff. And uh, um, I guess, you know, the, the key message there is, uh, you know, getting to your actual question is that uh, I think there, there's a lot, there's a lot going around out there, social media, you know, academics, uh, you know, sitting in the gym where it's either the bros talking because they have experience and they think they know everything, which they know a lot, not to <laughs> discount that, but they, but they don't know everything. Or it's the academics who sit back reading the books and the articles and doing the research, which again is all good, thinking that, well, you know, we don't often think we know everything, but, but uh, you know, it's, it is the marriage between them. And so, you know, when you look at something like squats and deadlifts, and, and particularly in the physio world, it's really uncommon, of course, as we know, for, uh, for physiotherapy programs to actually, you know, teach uh, uh, a quality squat or a quality deadlift, let alone even, you know, like, have them do it and right. and uh, learn how to coach it and that. Um, I mean, there's it, honestly, in my opinion, there's two two big things. One is that if you're going to train someone to get better from a functional perspective, which, in my opinion, is really the nuts and bolts of what we do as physical therapists, then you have to think big bang for your buck because they're only going to see you for a certain amount of time. Um, you know, if you, if you focus purely on the individual isolated type concern that they have at that moment, you're missing out on the big picture, right? So, so I think, I mean, inherently squats and deadlifts and, and most of the, uh, uh, the movements that are associated with these barbell lifts, I said associated with, it doesn't have to be the barbell, of course, which yeah. is, you know, get to the second part of your question. But, uh, you know, those are the big bang for your buck exercises. And you might do some other stuff to, you know, more of the therapeutic kind of side of things. But in terms of safety, I think the, the, the big, uh, uh, the, the big point is that anything you can do is 
either safe or not safe. I mean, it's it, it's not that. I mean, you, you know, we we've talked a little bit about CrossFit, and I know you don't want to get into that quite yet, but um, <laughs> it, it's like it's it's like that. I mean, there's nothing inherently dangerous about CrossFit. There's nothing inherently dangerous about a squat or or a deadlift. I mean, other than the fact that you're you're doing something, but there's risk to everything. So I think the main point is it, it does come down to knowing how to do it, how to coach, how to assess the individual that's in front of you and say you know what rather than making everybody do the exact same movement pattern because that's the gold standard of exercises you know let's let's actually fit the exercise to the person and uh you know through through an individualized assessment so so from a safety perspective i think i think it's i mean there's really nothing to be discussed other than the fact that hey you know work with what's in front of you yeah, I, I agree. And it's funny that you, you mentioned, oh, the barbell back squat, right? Like that was the first thing that came to your mind. And you're yeah. a guy that does a lot in the industry. So if you look at all the lay people out there or even recreational athletes, when they hear the word squat, they automatically think that they're going to have a barbell sitting on their back and they're going to have to go through an arbitrary range of motion that may not be tapered to their specific body type, their skill set, their loading uh, abilities and all of that. So it gets confusing there because like you alluded to, you have the bros saying, you know, you got to squat ass to the grass, bro. And then you have, you know, some academics that get into a deep dive in on the actual biomechanics of someone's perfect squat form. You know, I, I sit somewhere in between, but I, I'm just wondering, you know, this is one of these questions that is there a squat that you recommend for, you know, the average person to start up with uh, that, say, has squatted before but has never had true success and maybe getting flared up and, you know, working into chronic pain with that movement? Well, it's uh, um, you know we I know we both know Stu McGill and uh, his favorite answer is it depends and and I, I'm gonna I honestly don't I'm pull that out on me, Scott. <laughs> I, 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 I gonna I gonna pull it out, but but um, where I, and this is what I tell my students too is uh, you can tell me it depends, but then you got to follow it up with what what does it depend on? Right. So let's so all do that. Um, the I mean there really isn't a squat right it's I, I mean there's so many different patterns that you can look at there's so many different modalities uh, implements that you can use there's uh, uh, you know where you place the load the type of load the depth I mean all of those things are are things that I think is exactly what you said it it, it depends on the person in front of you their goals their capacities their uh, you know where they're going with that I mean is, is there a go-to that I, I usually try first I mean something uh, something that's close to like a goblety kind of squat tends to be successful at the outset but I mean by no means am I ever married to that and and uh, w what I do is is I look at the the mechanics of how someone bends down you know and and what how do they move what what happens with that do you know do they have any major compensations do they have any uh, major things that we would be worried about and so so I would look at it rather than a specific squat style as being the be-all and end-all I'd look at it as well, what what seems to work the best for this particular person and and so you do an assessment to figure that out yeah and that's the key right you have to be assessing to gain knowledge to know which one is right for you but that's something that you know, not a lot of people are going to be going through. Um, are there quick and easy assessments that you have used with great success just to push somebody in the right direction in, you know, their, their foot width, uh, their abduction at the toes, maybe their knee tracking and their depth? Yeah, there's a couple things. I uh, I really like the resting sort of deep squat position as as a bit of a clue as to what's going on. I mean, it certainly doesn't tell you everything about what's going to happen when you start thinking about an actual loaded squat. But the you know deep resting squat position uh, that that feels most comfortable for them. So I might get them to spend two minutes to just wiggle around at the bottom and say, hey, you know, just play around a bit, play around with your your width, play around with your angle, what feels the best, and then you can watch and see what happens as they start moving. So do, you know, as they start uh, abducting and, and going a bit wider or turning out, do they, you know, do they have any valgus knee collapse or do they have uh, more, uh, you know, do they lose some depth or do they gain depth or do they, you know, do they lose some uh, spinal positioning? Do they go into more flexion than posterior pelvic tilt or, you know, does it, does it 
tend to improve those things. So, so that, that I use usually at the outset and, and, uh, you know, we've had some pretty good success with that, but then from there you actually have to get them with sort of the squat as a movement rather than say, just finding the bottom position. And so, uh, from there, the usual step, unless I saw something really weird or, or something that I really wanted to dig into from an assessment perspective with the, uh, just looking at the, the relaxed deep squat, then, then I'd take them into a standing position and, and uh, just kind of walk them through, Hey, let's try, put, your put your foot with where it was and keep your toe out and and uh see if you can drop down and uh you know do you use of course use good cueing and, and that to to see how they move and then and then just usually play with it a bit um as we know there's uh i mean there's a lot that's that, that's coming out uh, i know ryan debell and uh, uh, dean somerset have put out in the last couple of years uh, uh, some really good series on uh hip anthropometry and and uh the uh, uh the actual anatomy associated with uh with hip position and and uh socket depth and things along those lines and and uh you know some assessments like that and so i, I use some of that stuff that which, which of course a lot of that's the clinical stuff is stolen from Stu mcgill as well um where you might do uh you know assess them doing rock backs and you know assess them doing like a hip scour type test uh you know supine uh, trying to figure out where they get the most flexion without compensation and, and that so uh you know combinations of that depending on what i see but usually the relaxed squat followed by actually getting them up and you know seeing how they move yeah, I, I love that article uh, by DeBell a couple of years ago. Uh, he actually had the pictures of the different types of femurs. So the, the angulation at the head and neck of the femur, but also how it articulates with the pelvis and that acetabulum and the angulation there in the depth. Uh, that was a smart article just because people have been debating this for so long. And it's not like Ryan wrote a novel about it. It was he literally just showed the perfect picture that explained everything. So a picture is worth a million words, right? Absolutely. You know, I, I want to ask you about that third world squat that you have people work into because that's uh, that's something that I use uh, for a corrective exercise and for general recovery and mobility work with my clients and my athletes. But I don't necessarily use it to uh, assess where somebody's squat is going to be ideally because of that posterior pelvic tilted position and the spinal rounding at the lumbar spine. Like, I think that's a big misconception that, you know, people say, oh, squat like a baby, but a baby has a totally different body type. Uh, their ligaments, their joints are not the same as a, a fully grown adult, but it's one of these things that people misconstrue that if you can get into this deep squat, this body weight third world squat, you should be able to get into that same position with a barbell on your back. Is that true? Oh man, no. <laughs> I, it, it, if that, oh, man, it, it, if I could do that, I would be so happy. <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, the, the, it's a, it's very, very few and far between where, where that actually translates directly over to the, the exact width and turnout and the exact depth. I mean, it's very, very, very few people can do that without some sort of compensation to get that low. Um, I, I use it as a, almost like a screen, you know, so I, I, I don't do a lot of FMS type stuff, but I do screen and uh, the screening usually in involves just taking people through uh, well I've got I've got three basic ones one uh, one for the squat is that it's the deep squat and it's just to look at you know what does the end range look like if you were to take them to end range but I'm, I'm not thinking I'm loading them there uh, second one's the hip hinge can they can they do any sort of hip hinge with any sort of uh, control and then the third one's looking at overhead mobility and so that would be uh, you know does their scapula uh, scapula move the way it should do, do you do you get any major compensations and what's the range of motion but you know before you get uh, say some lumbar extension or posterior pelvic tilt or, you know, some rotation or something like that. So, so those are sort of my basic three, but I, I never base what I'm doing purely on that. It's a, I look at those as sort of a screen for, for doing some of the major lifts. Yeah. And I think it should be mentioned that, you know, some very academic based orthopedic physical therapists, they'll say, you know what, I can get somebody in totally passive ranges of motion and I can determine the optimal squat, squat depth from a thing like a hip scour test, a bilateral hip scour test, or you know some other orthopedic assessments where you can stay in a neutral lumbar and thoracic spine, maybe in a supine position on a table. But that goes to show that the motor control and the mobility stability, it needs to match up, and usually it doesn't, especially for amateur athletes and lifters. Yeah, very true. Absolutely. And, and, uh, you know, the, you, you could look at those passive tests as what, what is the, 
sort of end range of possibilities for them, you know, but that doesn't, you're, you're absolutely right. It doesn't factor in the motor control. It doesn't factor in the, uh, uh, you know, the changes in muscle length for that individual and their, you know, base. I mean, you can take someone and look at their, uh, you know, have the, let's say they have the same passive hip uh, uh, flexion range of motion at the same degree of abduction, but you know, maybe their femoral length is different. Maybe their torso length is different. Maybe their, uh, you know, their ability to control, Role and their, their internal kinesthetic awareness and proprioception is different and they're going to squat totally differently. I, I think uh, you're going about it the right way because you do work in some orthopedic assessment, but then you actually get the bar on some people's backs and see what they can do, see where their skill acquisition is in the actual loaded variation, but also where you can mesh between and see if you can just get somebody hitting the iron hard and doing it in a safe and effective manner. Um, I, I touched on this subject, uh, I think, a year or two ago on T Nation. I think I've talked about it before on Strength Talk Podcast, but the article title was Squat Depth, The Final Answer. You know, you got to love those article titles, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's clickbait, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, it was, it was uh, my exact system that I use in office to go through and actually determine uh, the optimal squat depth, but then where to start off with. And it determines your, your foot uh, width apart, your abduction at the feet, your knee tracking, but also uh, where you start to posterior pelvic tilt and also flex at the spine. But, you know, guys, go over, uh, you can hit up T Nation for that article. But I think it's important to show that when you are a coach or you're a physio and you're looking at optimizing somebody's foundational movement pattern, so you're talking about the hip hinge, the squat pattern, a single leg pattern, upper body push and pull, and a loaded carry, like those six things are what you should be focusing on and trying to get those movements as good as possible from a mechanic standpoint. But when I take somebody's squat that comes in and they're either having pain with it or they're having some trouble and they can't progress their loads or they're a barbell athlete where they really need to be getting, you know, better squat depth coming out of the hole or something like that, I always take into account their current uh, ass to literally ground length and then see if we can get it down to that optimal range. So say somebody comes in and I do a bilateral hip scour test on them and it determines that their ass can literally get four inches from the ground with a neutral spine and that is absolutely totally passive. And then they come in and once we get a barbell on their back with some decent load on it, it shoots up to 12 inches. I think our jobs as coaches and practitioners is to try to decrease that range and try to get them as optimal as possible because that's going to be a great carryover for the longevity of the movement pattern, but it's also going to optimize uh, lower back and hip health, knee health, but also you know increase uh, the performance if you are a barbell sport athlete or even a field athlete for that matter. Yeah, really good points. Um, I, I think optimizing that range of motion, but you know you, you obviously have to keep. Uh, a few key things in mind as you're doing that because I mean that's assuming there's no compensation when you do that and and with that being a goal I think that's cool I think that's really awesome um, you know but uh, what 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 does that do in terms of when they actually get there in, in terms of their spinal position and and the re I, the reality in a lot of people that uh, that I work with I, I I don't work a lot with athletes at this point I mean we do we have power lifters that uh, that I consult with and that we work with but it, and and OE lifters but uh, CrossFit athletes but for the most part it's uh, it's general population and it's, it's people just trying to get, you know, in their opinion, fitter and health or whatever, healthier, whatever that means. And, uh, you know, we're not, we're not often dealing with, uh, you know, can you get those extra few inches? It's, it's, can you, can you even, you know, have the control to even do it? So, um, it's, it really does depend on the person that's in front of you. And I agree at the top end that that's an awesome goal. And I, I would push someone there if they were able to go that direction without compensating. The, the reality is that, uh, you know, that may, I mean, it's not a quick process that may take months, if not years oh, for yeah. some people and they may never get there. And, and that's, I think we have to recognize that that's fine, but, but to have that goal to, to try and keep uh, optimal uh, positioning without compensation, try and, uh, try and drop depth as deep as we can get, try and load as high as we can go safely, progressively. And, uh, um, you know, with monitoring the patient and client, uh, 
concerns and progress and that. I mean, those are those are all fantastic things. But the reality is not everybody's going to get there, right? So, so you know, the loading for someone who's a seventy-year-old, it's not going to be a barbell, likely at least not at the outset. Uh, might be dumbbells if we're lucky, and it, um, you know, that's if we're really lucky. If we're doing our job, it's probably starting with soup cans. You know, and and uh, but I'm not talking soup can bicep curls and uh, and uh, uh, you know the uh, the shoulder shoulder uh, abduction flies and stuff like that. I mean, like this is this is still the compound stuff, right? But 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 working with uh, all populations, and that's the power I think of strength training and, and doing it uh, in such a way that we're talking about is that it is applicable right from your you know 85 year old great grandmother who has an exercise in her life right down to your elite athlete and and uh, I mean the principles are all the same it's just everybody's going to approach it differently and it's going to look very different yeah I agree and when it comes to like a poorly executed squat I think one thing that scares physical therapists to death is that huge amount of lumbar and lower thoracic rounding and that dumping of the posterior uh, pelvis like is that the worst position that you could get in in a squat if you wanted to really just like go piss poor on it? Uh, well, not necessarily. Um, I, I think that uh, there there are lots of things that can can go wrong. I mean, there's tons of things that can go wrong with squatting. Um, you know, again, it depends on the person in front of you. If you have someone with a uh, finicky low back, then maybe that is the the worst thing that can happen. Uh, you got someone that's the issues you know, uh, or predisposition to uh, some instability at the knees, things like that, then may maybe it's a hip angle and uh, maintaining the, uh, you know, the, the, the neutral uh, toes over, uh, toes over the, uh, or sorry, knees over the toes kind of thing, you know, without getting any valgus collapse in that. So, so it, it's not, it's not the, the beast I think we make it out to be, but in certain people, in certain circumstances, I think it could be very significant. And uh, in, in the gym and in the clinic, if somebody comes in and they actually show uh, the quote-unquote butt wink or that that pelvic <clears throat> tilting towards the backside, are you going to correct that or are you going to let them work through it on their own? Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to see why it's happening. I mean, that's that's the first thing, and and also the degree of it. I mean, a, a little butt wink with uh, you know, if it doesn't have a significant impact on on the lumbar spine, I'm I'm probably not going to be that worried about it unless the person says, "Ouch," <laughs> you know, and if right. if that hurts them or if that if that exacerbates an issue that they've got, then obviously that's more of an issue. Uh, the way I look at it is I, I I talk about this zone of tolerance and. And this zone of tolerance to deviations from, say, perfect positioning, whatever that is, uh, your, your zone of tolerance does depend on the person in front of you. So you've got a healthy person, relatively young, good mobility, um, you know, able to squat down with decent mechanics, but still gets a butt wink at the bottom. Maybe they're an only lifter. Maybe they, you know, I mean, you see that all the time in only lifters, every yeah. only your butt wings almost and and uh, you know for the most part they're fine and and i think that zone of tolerance for those guys is fairly fairly wide it's it's uh, you know they're they're in a situation where you can afford to have them do that now having said that i would also say hey you know can you why is that happening i mean if it's if it's a motor control issue i might be a little bit more concerned than if it's hey we're just hitting end range of motion and they're just dropping down I, i'm not too too worried about that um if it causes significant i mean if we're talking big big issue you know where you actually get some not just not just flattening of the lumbar spine but you actually go into more flexion i think there's you know that zone of tolerance to, to those sort of deviations may go down a bit particularly if you've got someone with some pain or, or whatever but uh it totally depends on the person and why it's happening motor control for me if they don't have the motor control to to regain the position on the way up that's an issue yeah, that's a really good point. And you made a, a bunch of good points in that in that statement there because, you know, when you look at an Olympic lifter, all they're working on is their biomechanics, right? They're just trying to get those mechanics down so they can be as efficient and effective as possible under the bar. And they know their bodies pretty well. So there's something to be said about, you know, spinal flexion generally and then different degrees of spinal flexion in the bottom of that squat position and some of the best lifters in the world you know if you're a barbell athlete you know your body so well that you know if you go two more degrees that's going to be a back injury but if you stay under you know uh you know x amount of degrees of spinal flexion you'll be just fine 
But for the average person trying to get down and figure out that for themselves, I think that's where the average person gets in trouble when they go in with the wrong type of squat pattern or the wrong type of depth. They go in and they don't know exactly what their body can actually tolerate. And yeah. second on that thing was, do you think that you can actually achieve uh, a neutral or a semi-extended lumbar and thoracic position during the squat? Because, you know, from what I've seen, I think people at best are in neutral and at worst, they're starting off in, you know, a bunch of degrees of actual spinal flexion before they even get uh, descending into the squat. Yeah, th that, that's true. And it's, it's, uh, it's a really good point. Again, all, always comes down to what's in front of you because, I mean, you, you see the opposite as well, right? You see those that, uh, that start off their squat with a, uh, you know, with, a, with an anterior tilt and they start, they start dropping into extension as they stick their ass out you yeah. know, at the back and that. And so, um, it, it really does depend on, on the person that, you know, I always, I always rely on, okay, what do we know from a research perspective, right? You know, they, these are, these are topics that we, we, we talk about in the gym all the time. And, uh, you know, from a bro perspective or a clinical perspective, I mean, these are, these are really hot topics and they're important topics. You look to the research and there's, there's hardly anything. And, and that's, yeah. that's, it, it's almost the scary part of it is that, uh, it, you know, the research is so far behind what we think and the way we think uh, uh, clinically and practically. Um, but, but as we know, research takes time. So, so I guess to answer your question is that, uh, uh, you know, it, it comes down to the zone of tolerance. What does it look like in front of you for the person, you know, the type of movement? And, you know, it, it, it really does speak to the fact that, you know, if you're a physical therapist that hasn't done a lot of lifting, you haven't been around that crowd and, and uh, you, you know, you, you buy into what we're saying. You're like, oh, Dr. John Russin's amazing. I love his stuff. He says I should be squatting and teaching my my clients to squat so they want to go do it. I mean, the biggest advice that I can give is, guys, you got to get out there and do it yourself because you got to develop that, that internal awareness of what's going on and you got to develop a coach's eye as to see how important those deviations are. And it's not something you can put in a textbook. I couldn't agree anymore, and that's the advice I give to every DPT student, every exercise science student that wants to go one day and be the hybrid strength coach, physical therapist, is get your ass in the gym, and on top of that, start training people too. I don't care if you have to do it for free. Get a coach's eye, get your communication skills down, know what good movement feels like in your body, and then figure out what good movement looks like in other people's function. And that's something that the current curriculum isn't going to give you in DPT education right now. But, you know, that's a different topic. And, uh, you know, we had Quinn Hennick on a couple weeks ago, and <laughs> we, we pretty much went down the rabbit hole on that topic. But, you know, just from uh, a clinical perspective, like what is the role in strength training for physical therapists? Because there seems to be less and less in the education, but also when, you know, these coaches and these therapists get out into the clinic setting, there's barely any iron in the clinic. You know, if there's a kettlebell, you're lucky. There's absolutely rarely no barbells anywhere. Um, dumbbells are few and far between like why is there such this discrepancy between loading up foundational movement patterns which is a huge part of physical therapy in my opinion and what's actually happening with the bullshit therabands the bosu balls the balance discs uh you know everything in between that's not actually getting a pattern and challenging the pattern that we're trying to improve for injury prevention and remediation of bad movement i, I just don't understand it you know what? I, I, I agree with you completely. I, I mean, obviously, there's a role for some of that other stuff. I, I don't want to ever discount the fact that, you know, someone with a particular issue might be best with adding in or starting off with or incorporating in some way some of the isolation stuff, some of the, some of the other stuff we do. I mean, it's, it, it, it's not that therapists out there are stupid. You know, it's not that they, they, you know, don't have a clue of what's going on. It's just that uh, I think it comes down to philosophy of approach. But the biggest thing for me to, to, to answer your question is, because of course I agree with you that, you know, we should be talking about fundamental movement patterns like the squatting, pulling, uh, pushing, you know, that those, those patterns as the primary part of it. I think the big thing though is as therapists, we have a limited amount of time. Yeah. And you have to make a choice as to what are you going to spend that time on. And here's the thing. Here, here's, I think, the conundrum is that when we have, you know, short, short amount of time in a particular session and 
a short amount of time to work with someone in terms of length of like number of sessions, you got to pick your battles, right? And so for people that, that are working clinically, I think the battle is what can I do to have the greatest impact on the reason that they're here right now? And let me tell you, as you know, good quality strength training, this type of stuff we're talking about takes time. Whereas to take someone to teach them how to do a uh, rotator cuff, you know, TheraBand type exercise doesn't take any time at all. I mean, it's very, very quick. Whether they do it or not is another story. But, um, you know, all of that stuff is easy to teach. It's easy to do. It, it doesn't require you having to spend time in the gym like we've just talked about. Um, and the reality is that in that short period of time, they probably improve. You know, because if you take someone that's doing not doing what you're doing, you get them to do something, they're going to get better in some way, shape, or form. So they're gonna, their function is going to be better, their range of motion is better, their mobility is better, their, maybe their pain's reduced, you know, maybe they start feeling good, and then the therapist says, oh, okay, great, you're, you're feeling good, so, uh, you know, continue on, maybe progress the loading of these, and, and you're good, you're golden, right? But it does miss out on the big picture as what is the overall need? What's the big picture need for the vast majority of people that we're going to be dealing with? And it's not that little stuff. It's not, as you say, the bullshit stuff. It's the big movements. It's the movements that are going to allow them 20, 40, 80 years from wherever they're at to be able to get off the toilet when they're 90. Right. Like, oh, man. It, TheraBand stuff isn't going to do that. I'm sorry. It's not. It, this gets me lit up, this topic, because, you know, it's not that the stuff is bullshit and is absolutely useless. But I think it's important for a physical therapist, for any rehab or strength coach for that matter, to look at the big picture, like you said, the big picture is preventing injuries for the long run. It's not getting somebody feeling better, feeling 75, 80% so they can go hurt themselves again. Like we are doing our patients a disservice if we're letting them go out without the skills that they need to be their own best advocates when it comes to physical activity. Like the injury rates, the re-injury rates are skyrocketing. I mean, You've probably seen the research more than I have, but, you know, definitely in America, um, the earlier injuries, some of these chronic natured injuries just based off of faulty movement patterns, overtraining, like it's a huge problem. But again, our system is so reactionary that we're never preventing any of these things from happening. What we're doing is just putting band-aids on people over and over and over again. And in actuality, that's what's being reimbursed for. That's what the insurance companies are paying for. But if I want to spend time and actually give somebody some foundations, instead of giving them six corrective exercises, I'd rather utilize the time that I spent on those six correctives and actually try to work on a foundational movement pattern. Just chip away at something because I think at the end of the day, we can send our patients and clients out into the world, into the gym, wherever they're going to go when they leave our office, and they'll be better off for the long term if you actually work on perfecting movement as opposed to trying to give them exercises to remediate, you know, pain or dysfunction for the time being. Yeah. I think you're bang on. That's exactly the way that I'd approach it. I, uh, it's it's funny because this is this is the approach. Is of course I teach physical therapy students uh, up here in Canada, and um, you know this this is the approach that I say, and I I always inevitably always get the question, and, and it comes down to this. It's like, well, if they're going to get better with some of this other stuff, then why don't I just do that? And so so it is. Uh, it is a bit of a struggle to get uh, people starting to think that way, but you know, you, you get you get a lot of people starting to think, hey, you know what? Maybe we do have a big role in looking at preventing it. But then the question always comes is, you know, for you guys, it's billing, right? You know, I know you guys have, you know, can you bill for it as a big uh, big issue up here? It's a bit different, but I'm, I mean, most of the time the clients are paying for it. So is it is the client going to pay for it, or is the third party payer for a work injury or a motor vehicle accident are are they going to pay for that sort of thing? And um, it, you know, again, it comes down to priorities. What, where are you going to spend your time, and why? And you know, in in our opinion, obviously, we're on the same page that uh, that, that building long term strength has more overall global benefits for the person over the long period than the, than the little stuff. But um, you know, again, it's not that you say you can't do the little stuff too. You know, I, I think doing a bit of both is fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
But that's the thing, though. Uh, if you don't even have the implements in your clinic, like you are forced to just do the little stuff. Like it's not even an option for, you know, those outlier patients that need something above and beyond or they have a different goal set in their therapy or their rehabilitation. So. You know, it's one of those things that I, this is all my opinion, you know, it's not based on anything, but I think in general, physical therapists and the boards and the educational system are really just afraid of people getting under bars, getting under iron from, uh, you know, a risk injury in the clinic. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I think it's as simple as that is where you and I know that, you know, if you do it properly, you have doctors, doctorally educated professionals working with these people, sometimes one-on-one, -on -one, but always working directly with somebody, you know, we can't prevent these injuries that people are so scared to death of? It's a good question. <laughs> Honestly, it's, you know, I'm a bit, I, I get a bit, well, I know I get a bit dumbfounded with, with stuff like that because it's like, yeah, but you know what? You, you, like I'm looking out, out my window right now, and it's and, you know up here in Canada we've got a bunch of snow and it's icy out. So what am I going to do? Am I going to not go outside because it's you know because I might slip and fall? <laughs> like, <laughs> come on, you know it's it, it, again it's 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 an approach, it's a philosophy, and and uh, you know I don't I don't know what it takes to change. Well, let me tell you something I am excited about. We're we're moving into a new uh, new building for our academic program probably in about a month and a half. And uh, we've been working on uh, uh, my my exercise lab, and uh, man, it's got you know it's got a platform. We've got barbells, we've got a safety squat bar, we've got a hex bar, we've got a squat rack. Really, like, it's just that's what I'm talking about. I'm pumped, man. It's it's so good, and and you know it's based on the philosophy that uh, you know I I have worked with lots of practitioners that are. I mean, I I don't practitioner right now. You know, I don't practice. I'm not a uh, practicing therapist, although I do consult, and, and we do have a post rehab program at the gym that I work at. So so I I mean I still do this stuff but you know the the practitioners are actually dealing with a lot of people in pain at the moment i mean you know i base a lot of that stuff on on successes that i've seen you know there's, there's several clinics that do that but again it's not everywhere it's not universal so it, it's not to say that the people that don't have the you know the iron available to them can't practice this way because i mean it, it's like i said at the, the beginning of the podcast today is that it doesn't have to be a barbell i mean there's there's i mean barbell i think in the end if you're talking optimal for you know global sort of uh, ideas of how to how to progress i mean there's, there's there's really no better way that you can load someone over a very long period of time than with a barbell i mean all the other implements have some limitations to them um but that doesn't mean you can't start with, like I said, soup cans. You can't start with a kettlebell. You can't start with just the movement pattern. Right. Like, uh, you know, for me, squats, and this is, this is again, where I think uh, it, it hits at home for a lot of the students that I teach. When I say squats, again, you're right, they think barbell on the back. But, man, for that 80-year-old, a squat, a 1RM squat can often be getting out of a chair. Yeah. And so – I mean, the principles of training are the same. The principles of coaching are the same. Um, you take that someone who's totally, uh, you know, can't get out of the chair and they're using momentum and they're uh, hunched right over, their knees are collapsing in. I mean, those are little coaching fixes that when you develop that coach's eye and that appreciation for what some of those technique issues can do, you, you can make massive change. And someone who had like, you know, a less than body weight 1RM, I can't get out of the chair. You make those little fixes and all of a sudden, oh, I can get out of the chair. I didn't make them stronger in terms of their actual muscle strength. But this is the this is the key factor is that strength isn't just muscle strength. It's coordinated whole body movement strength. Yes. And I think you made a great point too with saying the principles of movement and strength. And in my opinion, any rehabilitative process, any training process for that matter, has to be based on all the principles that you have in front of you. If you're missing principles, then we're not doing the best job that we possibly can for our clients and our patients. But, you know, enough about this. I want to move on to some deadlifting. And, you know, you're an awesome. expert in this biomechanics, teaching it. Obviously, you have freaking squat racks and platforms out in your new lab here, which is awesome i think you're going to get some new students from this podcast <laughs> going up to <laughs> well, saskatchewan so. this, is, <laughs> this is good stuff hey, hey we're awesome up here i know i i, I uh, 
sort of downplayed the uh, the fact that we got snow and ice out there, but <laughs> we're, we're a good crew up here. Yeah, people are like, where's Saskatchewan? When we first started talking, I actually had to look it up on a map. I was like, I'm oh, not surprised. <laughs> you, you know, you did not too bad about pronouncing it either. You know, we, we kind of keep the W silent, but other than that, you, you did a good job. <laughs> You know, I should know this stuff because I grew up like five minutes away from the Canadian border in Niagara Falls. So, like, I should be up on my Canadian geography, and I was just laughing. Yeah, man. You know what? I mean, not to not to discount our uh, Ontario listeners, but man, they they don't know how to pronounce it either. <laughs> All right. So, for deadlifting, you know, anecdotally, in my clinic, in my gym, this is the one pattern that hip hinge pattern that I see, I mean, a vast majority of the population just not able to execute properly. Uh, you know, does the research show that? Does your experience in the lab show that as well? I, it, I think when you start talking research, it's it's very, very nebulous as to saying, well, that do people do it? So I think we have to rely on anecdotes. And I mean, I anecdotally totally agree with you. It's, uh, it, it's one of those patterns that A, is I think, if, if I had to pick one out of those three that I talked about previously, if I had to pick one that was the most important, it would be that one, it would be the hip hinge. And, uh, you know, anecdotally, it's also one of the ones that people screw up the most. And, uh, you know, the, I mean, the, the scapular stability stuff is, is a close second, but the hip hinge, man, it, it, it's fundamental to everything we do, like everything we do. Yeah. If you don't have it, I think you're in problem. You, you have a problem. That doesn't mean you have to be perfect all the time. That doesn't mean you always have to be in neutral. It's fine to say, hey, you know what, as long as I can control it, maybe the situation dictates I'm in some flexion. Or maybe the situation dictates, you know, I'm in some some extension. Again, depends on what's going on and the person in front of you. But the key is that you got to know how to control that. So, I mean, someone that falls into flexion because they can't control it, way bigger concern for me than someone that goes into flexion knowing they're going into flexion can control it back out of, out of it when they need to. Yeah. From an epidemiological standpoint, like what the hell happened to us in North America that nobody can hip hinge anymore? Man, we sit in chairs. I think that's. I think that is the simple answer. We sit in chairs. Did Kelly Starrett tell you to say that? No, he didn't. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not promoting his book. And and you know what? I'm not against chair sitting. Right. I, it's just that when then that's all you do, then 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 I think you've got some problem. Like I, you know, I, I I've got a standing desk, but I I frequently go from sitting to standing simply because I like it. You know, it's not. It's not. There's nothing inherently wrong with sitting. There is something inherently wrong with staying in the same position all the time every day right you know and i think i think the if, if you sit all day but then you also do some mobility stuff you work your deep squat you work your hip hinge in some way some capacity you're, you're and you get your general physical activity you're fine i mean it's not it's not like there's uh, you know some ma massive mobility things that happen you know uh, just simply because of sitting but the, i think the short answer to, to get at why is that we we're not doing any of those other things and we are sitting and I do think that reduces our ability to understand that connection from the brain to the pelvis and the, and the back and the muscles and to, to really get how you hip hinge. So, so do you think the problem of sitting is more like a motor control deficit that we just develop chronically over time? That, that's, what, that's what I would say, yeah. I mean, that's my opinion, right? Like, I don't think there's any good research on uh, uh, that, that suggests that over something else. I mean, it's, it's certainly a, a newer topic for what we're talking about. At least, certainly, I haven't seen anything. But, but that would be my opinion. Like, like, take me. I, I sit. I sit basically. Like I said, I try and do some sit to stand. But I like sitting when I'm when I'm typing and writing. So, uh, I, I do better with that. So I sit, right? And for me, I've also done these other things that I know I have the motor control that I can hip it, right? You know, but but those that don't, I, I think that honestly, that what we, I, I guess I look at this way, what have we replaced by adding a, a, a you know, chairs to sit on? And it, it, it's the, the you know, the, as you say, the Eastern uh, uh, squatting type pattern for resting, it's laying, it's, it's, it's actually doing more movement, it's, uh, you know, like actually having to work physically. I think uh, at, at a certain point, if you start lifting, as long as you're kind of being smart of it, your body sort of naturally develops some of that. It might not be perfect, but it develops it on its own. And the fact that we don't do a lot of that anymore in, in general society, 
couple that with the fact that we're not doing any uh, deep deep squatting, which again it is a mobility issue, but it's also a uh, it is also a control issue. I think it's a combination of factors. I don't think you can say it's purely one, but but the, replacing all these other things with more sedentary jobs in a chair, I think, have a big big part to do with it. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and I'll take it one step further. I think sitting is a big problem. But with the, the recent popularization in the last decade or two of handheld technologies, uh, at your fingertip technologies like computers, <laughs> cell phones now, you know, it's almost like a top down effect of shitty posture. Uh, you know, you get the neck that is just in a horrible position, the internally rotated and protracted shoulders, the thoracic rounding. And then taking those three regions, the neck, the shoulders and the thoracic spine into account, like, no wonder we can't uh, stay stable with a neutral spine when we go to use a hip hinge pattern because everything above that is just in a terrible position and it just biases um, these movement patterns to just be very faulty in nature. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. I think, uh, in, you know, to, to support what you've said, I, I agree that that can be a significant concern. And it, it's not like here, – here's where I, I get a little, uh, little bit of a uh, – bugbear about this is that uh, I, I don't think you can say any of these things are chronically causing causing all these problems like you know it's and, and I think and I know you're not saying that but I think the the message that a lot of people take from this at least in you know through social media and the stuff that I've seen is that oh you know you get text neck right and so yeah you're gonna have develop all these problems because you text in this position well that's not necessarily true I, I don't care how you text honestly <laughs> you text how you want to sit how you want to sit but just make sure you're not just just doing that, right? right you know, like get right. In, get into different positions, move around, work on your mobility. Like, you know, it, it, it sort of bugs me to hear some of that uh, that stuff from you know. Again, uh, most of the social media stuff is that uh, oh yeah, you know, you're gonna do, you are going to develop problems because your posture is shitty. Well, your posture might be shitty. You might not have any problems, and then who cares? But if your posture is shitty and it means that you've lost your ability to do the other things you need to do, then it becomes an issue. What do you think the carryover is, though, when you come in with faulty posture and then you get into an exercise program that is based off of the foundational movements that you can't do? Is that where people are going to be more predisposed to injury? Because, you know, in terms of like lower back pain or shoulder dysfunction, you know, the couch potatoes, the guys sitting at their desk 12 hours a day that don't go to the gym, they're probably going to be uh, less likely to be injured than the person actually going to the gym for an hour a day and going through these faulty movement patterns, right? Yeah, no, it is a good point, and and I think there, there's a bit of a dichotomy between, uh, you know, a lot of what's out there in terms of uh, the biomechanics related or the lack of biomechanics related to pain and pain science and injury versus training for capacity and, and as you said earlier, longevity of training. Which, which I think is really, really an important distinction, you know. And it, it uh, I, I, I sort of sit somewhere in the middle. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a pain science expert, um, and uh, I certainly hear what a lot of the guys that are pain science experts that know biomechanics say in terms of, well, you know what, people are designed to move. You know, don't, don't inherently tell them not to do something because it's going to break them, right? You know, so I, I totally, completely get that side of it, but. I also get the side of that someone comes to you that has poor posture that isn't correctable that you need to try and work with uh, that well not immediately correctable I mean that, you know so it might be over time you work on mobility and correct it I, I'm not going to necessarily put them in a position that I know from a training perspective is going to put them at higher risk I'm going to work on that and try and improve that for the purposes of training capacity so that in the long run they don't get hurt while they're training um, is there a direct link no. But uh, we, we do know that from a longevity perspective, you stay close to neutral for most things, and you're probably going to be healthier over the long period of time. And if someone can't achieve that, then you either have to make some modifications or, or address it directly or, or some combination of both. Yeah, absolutely. It, when people walk into my office and we, we start getting to work like on the physio side of things, uh, one of the first things I want to address is obviously posture. <laughs> you know, when we go down like – you know, physical therapy assessment and evaluation 101, it's taking a look at all of their postures that they're in on a daily basis. But I think many of us look at the postures, we know how to assess the postures, but how do we fix them? Because 
at the end of the day, you could have an amazing manual therapy session. Your corrective exercises could be on point. You know, your foundational movement pattern development could be spot on. You know, that entire session was perfect. But if somebody goes back to what they were doing before, is it like everything gets negated? Because I've seen that time and time again. And it's one of the most frustrating things is that what people do on a daily basis, you know, the things that you're in 10, 12, 14 hours a day, that can negate even some of the best therapy, some of the best training. Good point. And, and I think it goes the other way is that, uh, you know, it, not only can that not uh, or, or negate some of the gains you've got. I, I do think that, uh, um, you know, again, things are, are, are really situational, in my opinion. That, you know, if someone bends over to pick up a pencil and they're like totally flexed and, you know, not what you train them to do for a deadlift, but they have control, they have mobility, and then you go train them to do a deadlift and then they, they can deadlift great with good positioning and that. I don't necessarily see a problem with that unless they have a problem with it, right? right. Unless there, there's something going on that says, hey, you know what? I need to change the motor pattern. And I, I think those are two different goals that, I, that, that we mix up a lot is what are we trying to do by training? Are we trying to train a motor pattern or a, a very specific motor pattern? Or are we trying to develop longevity of training and overall strength? Or are we trying to build resiliency, or is it some combination? I think this is where we get really messed up when we start thinking of, well, if we want to train a motor pattern, then we have to be very specific to that motor pattern, and then then you start getting into what you know the quote unquote F word functional um, <laughs> type training, where it's like, okay, well now we have to mimic exactly what's been going on, and we have to make sure that everything is absolutely perfect. You can go way too far down that that hole, I think, with training, and, and then you miss out on the bigger. Uh, but having said that, if you've got someone that does have a patterning issue that is important, you know, you do have to address it and you might be a little bit more diligent about saying, you know what, at least until you know you've developed the control or, or you as the therapist know that the client has developed control over what they're doing and it's not affecting them negatively, you know, maybe you do be a little bit more diligent about what they're doing through their daily life. But in a lot of cases, honestly, I don't think it matters. I think if, there, if there's not a problem, I don't want to create one where there isn't, right? So let's get someone strong. Let's get them resilient. Let's let them move. Let's be humans. Let's do what we need to do. And you know what? When we develop problems, I mean, yeah, it is a bit reactive that way, but um, we deal with those specific problems as they come up. But it, if we're moving and, and we're keeping active and we're developing whole body strength, you know, I think we're doing our best, our absolute best to mitigate a lot of the problems that can come up. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, before we get you out of here, uh, wrapping up with one more topic here, I wanted to ask you about, you know, your most original and up-to-date research in the, in the field of CrossFit and sports-specific training. Because yeah. I know you're doing a lot of that up there, and it's always interesting for me because I've written on this subject multiple times, and it always seems to be a topic of interest for everybody. So mm-hmm. give us a breakdown of what you're currently doing up there in Canada, uh, your research topics, and what you're finding so far in the lab. Yeah. So, so I'll, let me touch on the powerlifting stuff first, and then I'll then I'll go to the CrossFit. Okay, perfect. If, uh, if that's cool, um, I've got uh, I've got a, a few students now working on uh, working on <laughs> I love it deadlifts. So, yeah. so what we're doing, we're we're actually getting at the the question that we addressed earlier. We're we're trying to figure out how much does uh, your uh, any limitations you have in hip mobility that impact your starting position how much does that actually affect it? So we're, we're, I'm working with uh, our biomechanics lab uh, up here in uh, kinesiology, and, and so we're, we're partnering uh, to, to look at different uh, aspects of mechanics. And so uh, we'll, we'll be looking at shear forces, uh, uh, torque, uh, joint torques, uh, EMGs, uh, movement mechanics, you know, things along those lines to, to basically get at the question, does, does, the, uh, you know, does that posterior pelvic tilt matter, and then how much does it matter? I mean, we know you go all the way into, into flexion, and then your lumbar extensors turn off as the flexion relaxation phenomenon. But for most people, we're not talking about that. We're, we're talking about subtle little changes. And so do those changes matter? And if they do matter, how much, you know, how, you know, how, how much change in, in shear forces or how much change in compressive loads or, or torque uh, at the joint and that. So, so this one's a really cool one. I'm super excited about this. We're, we're starting with a pilot study on deads. 
uh, where we're going to uh, examine uh, two different starting positions. So there's the there's the sort of more uh, weightlifting starting position where you you start with your toes kind of underneath the bar, and then you've got more of a yeah you know, the powerlifting start where you're a little bit further back towards the navicular, and, and you've got kind of those uh, uh, two starting positions, which we know from the research impacts the uh, the line of pull as well as the efficiency of the movement. So the further back you are, the better. But the further back you are, the less forward knee translation you can get, which means you rely, <clears throat> excuse me, more on hip flexion. So there's more chance of a limited limitation in, in terms of what they can do hip flexion wise. So, so we're examining the two different positions plus looking at uh, individuals hip mobility and trying to do a comparison of, you know, you know, how much does it matter? So if someone goes into more flexion and posterior pelvic tilt, what does that do? Right, because there's really nothing that's sort of looked at that directly at that level. So directly training related. Then the follow-up to that is going to be doing the same thing with squats, but it, but rather than doing sort of an isometric pull, we're going to be taking deads and squats and uh, look at a couple different positions. So some high bar, low bar stuff um, for squatting, and uh, then that positional stuff uh, uh, through a full deadlifting movement. And we're and we're going to take these guys heavy. So uh, so this this to me is you know applicable across not only the powerlifting world, but this is you know general pop kind of stuff like you know talking about this concept of zone of tolerance like how how much does that matter i think this is going to answer a lot of questions and i love that my students are really interested in saying how much does that butt work actually matter so then you know hopefully in a year maybe two or a year and a half you, we can come back on and you can ask me that same question does the butt wink matter and i'll have i'll have a research answer for it yeah you'll have a yes so, or no <laughs> yeah <laughs> but it'll, it'll still be it depends <laughs> yeah right but, but this but is why i love what you're doing it. though man like we're literally sitting here uh you know theoretically talking about this stuff and seeing what we see anecdotally and you're able to take this and put it through in peer-reviewed research like this is powerful stuff because when you get coaches that understand movement, that understand strength training and the power of both of those things, and then ask the right questions to get it into research, that those are the studies that I want to read. You know, yeah. not from some dork in a lab, nothing against, you know, some of the stuff that's done, but I respect people that, you know, practice what they preach and then research what they preach to know definitively, well, hopefully, right? if something is working or if something is not working. Uh, I think that pushes our field ahead so far uh, more than anything else in our field. Yeah, and it's like I said at the outset, it's a, it's a bit of a combination, right? You know, I wouldn't yeah. be doing this if I, if I didn't train myself because I wouldn't understand, right? You know, so for <laughs> me as a researcher, you know, the dork in the lab, that could have been me if I didn't train. And and I mean, that's that's the reality, right? You know, that that uh, if you don't do a combination of both, you don't see both both angles from it and see the relevance of it. So so it doesn't get it get done, right? So you yeah. got me excited about the the power lifting stuff. Now, what do you got on the CrossFit side of things? Yeah, so so we've done actually a couple studies on uh, on, on some CrossFit and CrossFit like things, and and I want to be very sort of specific about the way that I say that. Cause Is I that with the trademark on it or not? Uh, well, when I say CrossFit, it'll have a trademark. <laughs> the CrossFit like things, it doesn't. I, I love CrossFit. Let me let me just say that it's uh it's just like anything else. Like I said at the beginning, it doesn't matter what you're doing. There's risks to everything. The risks for CrossFit are no different than the risks for anything else. It just stuff happens, and you can't always control it. And it often comes down to whether you're moving well or not, and whether you're programming well or not. And that can happen with anything. Like so, so I I never want to poo-poo anything about you know any specific type. Of of training unless there's something that is inherently dangerous and this is where the opinion stuff comes in is that a lot of people say that, that there are things that are inherently dangerous the research right now that's out there doesn't support that it's it's the the injury rates the incidence and prevalence stuff is that yeah there are injuries there's injuries in everything but there, there there's no real discernible difference between that type of method and any other type of method so if you want to do it great go do it it's a fantastic way of looking at multimodal type of gains right but having said that, we do know that it is high intensity and for some clinical populations or people just starting out, you know, you mitigate intensity a bit, right? And, and there's, there's, there's some ways to do that. One is to scale back and which in CrossFit I think does a great job of doing that if you have a competent coach that's coaching, which, which I think in a lot of cases is true. In some cases it isn't, but again, that's the same as anything. But so, so scale back the intensity and, and say, hey, just work within your capacity, find a movement pattern that works for you. In, in the cases where, where that happens, and that's what coaches are taught to do, um, it, it's fantastic. 
there's uh, there, there's another side to it too, though, and, and I kind of came into the training world from uh, thinking of uh, clinically what you can do with high intensity intervals, and uh, these to me are also very scalable. But uh, one of one of the thought processes is that you know with high intensity intervals being a huge uh, popular area, um, it does miss the boat on on doing some muscle strength stuff. And this is where CrossFit, I think, you know, when they use an interval model, can can uh, uh, combine the benefits of high intensity interval training and strength and power training and get these sort of multiple benefits. And so we've done uh, we've done a little bit of research on what we're terming uh, multimodal high intensity interval training under the big term of say high intensity functional training for example and so that's that's what you see out in the research and so we've done a bit looking at uh traditional uh say using a rower to do hit and and some multimodal stuff with uh with crossfit uh, like things out of a crossfit facility and you know pairing it up and so we've published that in uh, in the canadian uh, uh society for exercise physiology journal last year uh we're, we're doing some acute stuff uh with uh, looking at the responses uh heart rate physiological responses muscle oxygenation and stuff like that to look at the demands of this type of exercise and then we've also done some stuff on looking at performance in CrossFit, and we published uh, one article last year that uh, that looked at CrossFit performance and, and relationship between performance and functional and physiological uh, sort of test measures, right? So, uh, how much does, for example, VO2 max impact into your CrossFit performance, or how much does your Wingate perform, you know, Wingate anaerobic power and capacity play in, or how much does your muscle strengthen? So, the interesting one about that one is that we found that the uh, VO2 max matters not at all you know it, it's a very small aspect of of what you're doing so from the aerobic system at least from a vo2 max as a measure it doesn't matter that much what does matter is is how strong you are how 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 much you're able to perform these uh, uh whole body movements and so we didn't do uh i've got a one study right now that's just looking at the uh the isokinetic muscle strength so actual muscle strength but what we did for strength was whole body lifts right so we compared it with uh deadlift we actually did the crossfit total so we did uh, deadlift squat and overhead press okay. together as a combined measure and, then, and that was the best predictor of how someone did on uh, on uh what did we do we did a fran we did a cindy we did uh, you know so so the higher intensity ones then the longer ones and there's yep. one other that I forgot about, but um, but but sort of looking at several different aspects of it. So I uh, I mean it, it comes back to what we're saying is that the research is sort of saying that muscle strength is is kind of a key component of all of this stuff, and you know and and the, those I mean if you were doing metcons all day, I'd say you're all day every day you, you may be running into a chance of uh, of maybe more problems happening or maybe not as much adaptation. But if you're varying it up like they suggest and doing some strength, doing some power, doing some metcons, doing mobility, and, and kind of putting the package together with good movement hey i'm all for it this gets gets me excited because uh i think this is a huge area where the research is lacking and if there's pros out there like you looking into this i think uh you know the sport is going to move forward as it's already has over the last last couple of years but also the industry in general the fitness industry is just going to move forward as well um quick question on a follow-up how, how active is crossfit right now in reaching out to individuals like yourself to get into the depth of research uh, in in my opinion they're not and and uh, you know I've, I've reached out to them and uh, you know when I say them it depends on who you're talking about like you, you talk to <laughs> you yeah I mean you talk to the individual uh, individual uh, affiliates right the boxes themselves yeah. I think are are really keen for this sort of thing I, I, I work with uh, uh, synergy strength and conditioning here in Saskatoon it's CrossFit Saskatoon um, and and the other two facilities that are here in, in Saskatoon are also very very open to, uh, to to promoting research and that so so I've had really good success here at the local level, uh, working with the affiliates in the boxes and getting participants and getting them engaged in, in what we're doing. So it's been fantastic that way. And, and I've seen it as a two-way street that way. Uh, in terms of uh, HQ, honestly, I, I don't know if they care. And I don't think they should, actually, to be honest. I mean, at, at some level, it, it's nice to say, hey, we have research to support what we're doing. But, you know, they know that they know what they're doing works. And, uh, yeah. you know, how how HQ approaches a lot of things. And it, it's a, hey, we know what we're doing works. And, you know, until you come up with something that works better and you can demonstrate that, we're just going to carry on. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. 
to be honest, I think that I think that's totally fine. It, but it is up to the individuals like us, you know, that are out here in the field, out the, the practitioners, the coaches, to say, okay, that's great. You know, we've got a methodology that works. We've got a methodology that's effective. Uh, that uh, you know, we know how to kind of control some of the issues. To, to take that information and and, and apply it to the people in front of us. And, and ultimately, that's that's where the, the people that go wrong are the ones that don't do that. You know, the ones that say, hey, let's give everybody the same Metcon at the same loads, at the same intensities, the same whatever. And, you know, that's that's not what CrossFit's about. It's not what training's about. It's not what powerlifting's about. It's not what, you know, anything. It's not what physio's about. It's all about, hey, let's let's fit what we're doing to the individual because the individual is the one that needs to benefit from it. So anyway, that was a bit of a, a, a whirly truly answer. But, uh, <laughs> no, honestly, no, I yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, it's not that they're not open to research. I mean, I, I've had really, really good conversations with the guys at HQ and, uh, you know, they're, they're very, very supportive. Like the, uh, the Russells, Russ Green and Russ, Russ Berger, both have been fantastic in terms of offering advice and saying, Hey, have you thought about this? And, and, uh, you know, and, and giving ideas as to how this all fits together and, and helping with interpretation based on what they know and, and that. So I, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that they don't care. I mean, I, I just think in general, they're not, they're not interested in saying, Hey, we need research to support what we're doing, but, but they're very, very game with, with, with helping us. If, you know, we're saying, Hey, we want to do research on CrossFit, you know, what, what, what do you see as the, you know, the need? And, and so they've been good that way. Right. That's good to hear, too, because uh, you know, they shouldn't care, like you said. Uh, they know something's working. They have millions of anecdotal studies, you know, training every single day. So, hey, you know, until somebody makes a different model and actually gets research to say one way or the other, if it's good or bad or indifferent, whatever, you know, they don't care and they shouldn't care. But Scotty, I've had you over here for too long. So where can people get at you, uh, your website, uh, contact you for anything? Where's your hubs at? Yeah, yeah. So Twitter, um, Inked Prof Scotty um, is, uh, is the uh, Twitter handle. Uh, Facebook on Dr. Scotty Butcher. And I also run out of Boss Strength Institute. So it's Boss, uh, B-O-S-S Strength Institute. And so that's on Facebook and uh, Boss Strength BossStrengthInstitute.com is uh, is the website as well. So uh, usually Twitter and Facebook are the best ways to get a hold of it. Awesome, man. Uh, this was a great conversation. I appreciate your time. And I would love to hear more about uh, the powerlifting research, but also the CrossFit research. Sometime later on this year or next year, we're going to definitely have you back on. Hey, that sounds awesome. I had fun. You're a good guy to talk to. And, you know, it's like you said at the outset, we, we see eye to eye on a lot of things. So it's uh, it's been a pleasure. Man. Oh, thank you. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to another great episode of the Strength Doc Podcast with my guest, Scotty Butcher. And if you love this episode as much as I think you did, head over to iTunes, hit us up with a five-star review as these reviews really mean a lot for driving us up the charts and continuing us to get the best guests possible from the fitness and health industry. All right, guys, until next week, I'm Dr. John Russin with the Strength Doc Podcast hosted by UpDoc Media. <laughs>